0: Hey everybody, it's John Marinelli from ENT in a Nutshell. Just want to make sure you're aware of our website, headmirror.com, where each podcast is keyword searchable and the content, along with our surgical video atlas, is systematically organized by subspecialty. All right, time
1: for the episode. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Alyssa Smith and today we're joined by pediatric otolaryngologist, Dr. Sarah Bowe. Today, we'll be discussing sleep-disordered breathing in pediatric patients. Thanks for being here, Dr. Bow. Thanks for having me. So thinking specifically about symptoms that patients present with, how does a patient with sleep-disordered breathing typically present?
0: Sure. So, you know, again, uh, we're often working with our pediatricians. And so um, as a caveat, I will say probably about half of the patients that I see are um, often come in actually with a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea because they've been sent for sleep studies already. And so they come in with that. Um, But other times they're coming in more with sleep disordered breathing. Um, And so there's a lot of overlap between these obviously. Um, Sleep disordered breathing can really be a wide variety of symptoms, but usually the primary one is snoring. Um, And then it's kind of alterations in the sleep patterns other than that snoring so whether that be kind of pausing in the breathing or gasping or tossing and turning Um, many times they may get up during the night so they've maybe just like never slept through the night uh, which is a common complaint from parents being like i feel like they should be sleeping through the night and they're still not um and then uh another thing is you know they may be kind of like falling out of bed sometimes they are still wetting the bed even beyond the age that they should be. So they're maybe nine years old and they're still wetting the bed. Um, And sometimes their breathing can just look funny as parents are kind of watching them. Um, And, you know, I do find that this can be very disruptive to the parents themselves because they're really worried about the breathing in their kids.
1: And then are there any like daytime symptoms that patients can present with?
0: Yeah, so, you know, certainly um, the disruption in the sleep. Um, We know that sleep is profoundly important for everybody, Um, and so that disruption in the sleep um, can often present with behavioral problems. And so that's a distinct question that I usually ask about is, you know, are they having problems concentrating in school? Are there issues in school? Um, You know, there can be some overlap and overlay with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, Um, and as well... You know, in kids, it seems to be more that they have hyperactivity than, perce- than the same kind of like fatigue or somnolence that adults have. They kind of flip into that reverse. Um, you know, it's something that sometimes we notice in toddlers, if anyone's a parent, you know, once they get overtired, they become crazy. Um, so it's kind of that similar pattern that seems to happen in kids. And then they can just have other ENT related symptoms like they're chronic mouth breathers. They've never been able to really breathe through their nose. Um, They may have chronic kind of runny nose or um, other
1: symptoms like kind of allergy related symptoms as well. And then thinking about timing of presentation, can this present, you know, with very young infants and teenagers, what is the timing like?
0: Sure. So, you know, certainly obstructive sleep or sleep disordered breathing or obstructive sleep apnea, I'll kind of probably go back and forth between these a little bit throughout because there's a lot of overlap, but, um, you know, These symptoms can present very early. Usually, if they're presenting very early, it may be for other reasons. So it's possible that you may have an infant that's having these symptoms. And it could be something like laryngomalacia. They have the floppy larynx that's causing some of that obstruction. Um, But for the for the large majority of kids that we're talking about here with sleep disordered breathing, um, it's usually, you know, we will see it in kind of two, three, four-year-old kids, and that's probably. The, the larger chunk of them. And then again, it starts to trapes off as they get um, in towards school age and older. Um, and the large for the large majority of this reason, it's due to their tonsils and adenoids. And so again, as we know that these kids are getting infections, getting exposed to things, those tonsils and adenoids are protective in that sense and also swell in that sense. Um, and so sometimes these symptoms really actually present after a bad kind of cold or infection, and then may stay that way
1: or may resolve a little bit over time. And how common is this?
0: It is not as common as otitis media, which we talked about on our last podcast. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it still is pr- it can be pretty common. Maybe, you know, close to one in 10% of kids will have snoring. Um, and then maybe about like one to 5% of kids will have um, obstructive sleep apnea.
1: And so what is actually happening in the airway that is causing this disordered breathing to occur?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, there can be some obstructions that are happening at baseline. And so certainly if a kid has 100% obstruction of their adenoid at baseline, they're going to have some nasal obstructive issues at baseline. Um, And then what typically tends to happen, again, you may have kids that have four plus enormous tonsils at baseline, they're already going to have some obstruction. But generally what happens is that specifically in sleep, our tone goes down a lot. And so that kind of like relaxation in terms of like neuromuscular relaxation causes everything to essentially fall into the airway. Um, And so because of that, Even tonsils that maybe don't seem that big on exam might only be more of that two plus nature. So you can see them there, but they're not heading kind of more over or touching in the middle. They still may fall in and block the airway as kids are going off to sleep.
1: And so you mentioned the tonsils as a level of obstruction, but where else can obstruction occur?
0: Yeah, so really, you know, it's kind of, it's one of those situations where you can start at the top and work your way down and thinking about it or vice versa. Um, But there are definitely multiple levels that it can happen at. You know, the tonsils and the adenoids tend to be ones that we talk about more frequently because those tend to be the most common, Um, but there can be obstructions kind of at the base of the tongue in terms of the lingual tonsils, um, as well as even kind of at the superglottis. So in terms of kind of where the epiglottis sits, or again, similar to how we talked about laryngomalacia can have some of these same um, presentations in younger infants, um, and then there can be predisposing factors, which can cause narrowing in the kind of nasopharynx or the oral pharynx. And that may be due to mid-face, um, mid-facial growth issues and or micrognathia. And so all of those can really contribute at the different levels.
1: And so you've mentioned so far kind of two terms, sleep disordered breathing and obstructive sleep apnea. Can you define those for us?
0: Sure. So, you know, sleep disordered breathing is a more kind of catch-all term. It is breathing that is disrupted during the time of sleep. Um, And so that can you know, have multiple descriptions as we kind of talked about in terms of pausing, gasping, choking, some of these kind of more broad generic terms. Obstructive sleep apnea requires diagnosis by a formal polysomnography or PSG. Um, and so in order to have the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea in kids, there is a value called the AHI or the apnea hypopnea index. Um Generally speaking, what they're doing is they hook up all the monitors and are able to assess whether or not there's pauses or apneas in the sleep, whether or not there's shallow breathing, in which case the oxygen level drops a certain amount. And then they essentially tally those up over time, average them out over the time of sleep. And then that is how you get the apnea hypopnea index. Um, and so In pediatric population, anything over an apnea hypotonia index of one is considered sleep apnea. And then generally speaking, we've divided those into mild, moderate, and severe with an AHI of one to five being mild, kind of five to 10 being moderate, and over 10 being severe. Um, And then another value that we often will look at is also the lowest oxygen saturation throughout the night. And in that case, there's a little bit of like rough values that people use. But generally speaking, if the LSAT is below 80%, so into the 70s, that's also deemed more severe sleep apnea.
1: And so I can imagine that there's other sleep disorders that could be causing some of these symptoms that children can present with. So what other sleep disorders should be on our differential diagnosis? Yeah. So, you know,
0: certainly... Uh, there can be a wide range of sleep disorders as well. Uh, You know, one of the biggest things, and particularly in our teenage patients, there can just be their actual sleep hygiene. Um, And so I think that getting a good assessment of the actual sleep process is very helpful. Um, And so, you know, if kids are going to bed at 1130, 12 o'clock at night and trying to get up at five o'clock in the morning, which are a good handful of my teenage patients, um, you know, they're going to have some sleep disruption. They're going to have some poor attention issues. They're going to have all of that for many other factors other than the fact they might also have some of these sleep-disordered breathings, but it's very helpful to have some of that history. So you know, kind of what's the bedtime routine? You know, are they watching TV or on phones right up until the time that they're going to sleep? Are they, um, you know, are they having coffee? Granted, hopefully our two and three year olds are not having coffee, but teenagers like to hang out at Starbucks. Um, so all of these things factor in a little bit into that, those, that sleep hygiene set. Um, and then there can be other disorders like restless leg syndrome that can also cause kids to toss and turn throughout the night. Um, And some of these other measures can be picked up on the sleep study and give you some of that information. Um, In some places, there may even be kind of sleep dedicated or sleep disturbance specialists. Many times they may be pulmonologists. Um, And so we have a wonderful, um, basically kind of like behavioral sleep person um, that we're able to access when there may be these other kind of contributing or confounding factors. Um, It's been great for us because we've worked on creating essentially like a multidisciplinary um, sleep clinic where we have pediatric pulmonology and neurology And ENT, and we kind of bring everybody together to sometimes talk about these situations where we have complex patients that have a lot of overlapping conditions.
1: So you've mentioned a lot of really important questions related to sleep hygiene that you might ask a teenager or even a younger patient, but what are some other important questions that you are asking during your history taking?
0: Yeah, and and so, um, you know, I think every time a patient comes in, it's helpful to know kind of the entire history of other things that may be impacting it. And so again, you know, allergies certainly come into play. Um, They can impact the size of the turbinates, the size of the adenoids, um, congestion and other issues in terms of breathing through the nose. And so the relationship to allergy is really important. Um, Another thing that can be helpful is also just making sure that, you know, they're not on, other medications for other things. So it could be that they do already have a diagnosis of ADHD. Um, So that can certainly help, Um, you know, maybe are they on stimulants for some other, other reason? And so that can be impactful. Maybe some of the sleep disturbances happened with new medications that were started. Uh, another thing is, you know, have they had other surgeries before, you know, maybe they've been somewhere else and they've already had their tonsils and adenoids out. And so that would certainly change a little bit of what you might be thinking in terms of assessment and management. Um, and so really kind of rounding out some of those other, um, history pieces are helpful.
1: And then moving on to your physical exam, what are you assessing and evaluating and what should we be looking for? Yeah. And so,
0: you know, again, kind of a, a comprehensive exam is always the right answer. Um, you know, I think in terms of specifically for thinking about kind of sleep disordered breathing um, and obstructive sleep apnea, uh, you know, a good kind of assessment of the kind of facial skeleton in a way to see if there is any of that Midfacial growth or midfacial hypoplasia. If there is any micrognathia, um, also kind of like assessing um, in terms of the oral cavity. We've talked about the tonsils. Um, you can try to get a general assessment of their tongue, but you know, assessing kind of tongue size and and where that's sitting, other than if it's being impacted by the jaw, is sometimes a little bit difficult. Um, And then certainly overall, body habitus is really important. Um, We know that obesity is a big risk factor as well. Um, And so um, having an understanding of the impact of weight is very important too.
1: And so you mentioned that a lot of these patients or some of these patients will present already with a sleep study that's been done. But for those patients that haven't had a sleep study, how do you determine who's a good candidate to get one?
0: Sure. So um, there are definitely some risk factors which are going to want to prompt you um, to get a sleep study regardless. Um, In terms of our academy's perspective, not every child with sleep disordered breathing that has a history and exam that are concordant needs to have a sleep study. Now, our academy guidelines uh, are a little different than some of the others. So, for instance, the American Academy of Pediatrics basically recommends that, like, anybody that you're concerned for sleep apnea should get a sleep study. Um, And so that's why I think a lot of the patients that I have do already come in with sleep studies ordered um, in some capacity but for from our standpoint if you have a story that fits and you look and you've got 3 4 plus tonsils and it's otherwise healthy kid then that kid probably doesn't need to sleep study um, but if you have kids that maybe they just have like 1 plus tonsils and you know the story sounds like it fits and but it doesn't seem like it quite matches up, then that disconcordance is a reason to consider getting a sleep study. Also, if the you know the history just maybe doesn't sound quite right, but you know, maybe they've got more of this, these other issues, maybe they've got restless leg or something else that's contributing, then that might be a reason to consider one. And then otherwise in kids that have um, some other Basically, like kind of risk factors. So any kids that are under the age of two years old um, or kids that have obesity, um, as well as kids that have Down syndrome, craniofacial abnormalities, neuromuscular disorders, um, basically other reasons that they could have more severity and or may need kind of more monitoring postoperatively because of these risk factors.
1: And so you mentioned Down syndrome as a risk factor, but are there any other associated syndromes that we should be aware of?
0: Yeah, you know, I definitely think um, certainly some of the craniofacial um, syndromes, again, mostly because they're going to impact some of that um, area in terms of the midface and the jaw. So um, so some of your um, like pierre robin sequence or Stickler syndrome, also Treacher-Collins, potentially hemifacial microsomia, um, and then um, in addition to that, some of the craniosynostoses, so really anything that has a kind of risk factor for changing some of the positions um, that may then impact the nasopharynx and oropharynx. Patients may not have a very specific kind of neuromuscular disorder that's diagnosed, um, but we definitely can see patients that generally just are a little more delayed or have hypotonia issues. And so any syndromes with hypotonia as a symptom um, or some of these kids that maybe are undiagnosed but certainly are, are lagging a little bit from developmental milestones um, are also at risk.
1: And then can you touch on the role of a drug-induced sleep endoscopy for children?
0: Sure. So a drug-induced sleep endoscopy in in some respects is a little bit newer-ish into our armamentarium. Um, And I think that we're kind of in the process of teasing out um, what are the the best kind of situations to think about using it. Um, Generally speaking, for most of your kids that don't have any of these risk factors and are otherwise pretty healthy kids that, you know, have ta- have their tonsils and their adenoids still, usually tonsil and adenoid upfront is going to be your go-to procedure um, when we're talking about surgical management the drug-induced sleep endoscopy um, gives us a little bit more information for kind of two subsets of patients. One is those patients that have already had a tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, um, and they still have sleep apnea. Um, and so the what that procedure can do is we basically take the patient back to the operating room, and we use the same NP scope that we would use, kind of in clinic to do an exam of the, you know, nasopharynx, kind of oropharynx, and larynx area, um, but we do that as the patient is in this slight sleep state. Um, And there are different medications that people use. Presidex and propofol tend to be the most common ones. Uh, But basically, as they're kind of in just going off to sleep and reaching some of that kind of snoring state, you have the telescope in there in order to look at that kind of velopharynx area, kind of oropharynx area, at the tongue and kind of in that kind of supraglottic area. Um, And then you can see if they're are specific areas that are collapsing, um, some of which may be amenable to additional procedures. So perhaps there is some laryngomalacia that's going on. Um, and otherwise if you know it's more kind of like collapse of the throat itself. Not really as amenable to surgery, uh, but then that may help give direction for other options such as CPAP or the continuous positive pressure treatment.
1: And so before we talk about the specific uh, approaches or treatment options, can you touch on the goals of treatment?
0: Sure. So, um, you know, in terms of the goals, in many cases, the goal is to improve the obstructive sleep apnea. Um, You know, in, again, kind of, there's kind of the different subsets of patients, but, um, you know, in your otherwise pretty healthy patients that are, you're doing a tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, ideally, you're trying to improve their symptoms. And when it comes to kids that have more kind of like mild to moderate sleep apnea and their symptoms in terms of their snoring gets better, their sleep is much less disrupted, their behavior maybe improves, and they appear to have improved very much symptomatically where the parents are you know, kind of relieved (laughs) that they've finally been able to get some sleep and rest and things have turned around. I, if they have had a sleep study, I usually will not get a repeat sleep study. And so um, I will go more off kind of the symptomatic improvement. Um, In terms of the severe sleep apnea and some of those other cases, um, you know, generally, you're trying to make them better. Um, ideally, you know, you're know, you trying to get them at least kind of a 50% improvement. Um, again, depending on the severity and the type of child and other risk factors, I may not always also repeat a sleep study with the severe sleep apnea. Um, I talk about that with the parents, kind of give them the options, but um, many times, those parents, when the kid has really gotten almost entirely better from their standards, they also will say, "I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think we need to do another one of those." So, um, so really, it's helping to kind of move the move the needle in terms of the symptoms.
1: And so, before we touch on some of these surgical options, can you discuss a little bit about any medical options that are available, if any? Yeah, so
0: um, there have been um, a couple studies um, that have looked at certain kind of medication treatment options. um, And then always... You know, there is just watchful waiting and kind of the test of time, depending on um, the age of the child and the severity. Um, There have been studies where they've watched kids over time, um, where, you know, many of them in the next kind of five to seven months will actually improve and maybe outgrow their sleep apnea when it's more in that kind of mild to moderate range. And so, certainly, watchful waiting can be an option. Um, In terms of, uh, there always is kind of the option for um, continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP, or, or bi-level positive airway pressure, BiPAP. Um, you know, for the most part, most kids aren't going to tolerate that very well. Also, if you know tonsillectomy and an adenoidectomy can potentially treat them of their symptoms and then they do not need to use this. That tends to be an option that most parents would elect for um, as opposed to trying to have to do this on a continuous basis. Um, And then in terms of medical options, using topical nasal steroids, um, there's been support for that um, to help improvement in kind of more mild to moderate cases. Um, And then also there was a study, um, or there have been a couple studies that were done in the pulmonary literature um, that looked at Montelukast or Singulair, so another type of allergy treatment um, that they specifically used for mild to moderate cases of sleep apnea and also showed, uh, showed improvement. Um, and so I know that there is at least a handful of kind of ENTs that had potentially started using the singular as well, kind of in their practice. Um, the kind of hard part in terms of the medication management is, You know, when do you start it and when do you stop it? Because most of the trials, you know, treated kids for 12 weeks or 16 weeks, but then there wasn't a lot of follow up for, okay, well, do you keep doing it or do you start it again or stop it or what to really do? So that, that factor is a little bit nebulous, um, you know, and again, this is where some of the background of the patient can be helpful because um, it's possible maybe they have allergies or there's a suspicion that there's allergies and maybe they've just been on an antihistamine or maybe they already have been on a nasal steroid. Um, and so having that history can really impact what are some of the future options that you have. Um in terms of the, the um there actually is a new uh, boxed warning on that medication for pediatric patients. So not a black boxed warning, but a boxed warning. Um, and the boxed warning is that there can be behavioral disturbances um, on that medication. Um, and so um, it can, I think, cause problems such as depression or anxiety or hyperactivity. And I believe um, even in the, I think, generally a more adolescent population, but there had actually even been kind of increases in some suicidality, I think, that was seen. Um, And so the boxed warning just came out recently. Um, And I will say that uh, I actually heard about this use at an academy meeting um, and I did start using it a little bit here and there, at least offering it to patients depending on different situations. Um, And I did hear kind of anecdotally that there was a patient or two that like their their kid actually became more hyperactive on it. Um, And so I started counseling patients about that um, and to stop using it if that happened. Um, But with the official boxed warning, I haven't decided. I might kind of change that or leave that more to my uh, pediatric sleep colleagues to to dole that out next time.
1: <laughs> and I know one thing I've heard of just in general for sleep apnea is the whole tennis ball and a T-shirt trick. Do you ever use that, and does it work?
0: Yeah, I think um, it's uh, sleep apnea is interesting because certainly there can be some positionality to it. Um, the the I can't say that with the tennis ball and the t-shirt, I've heard it so much in the pediatric population. I know I think that there's a fair amount of uh, people in the adult population that, um, that the supine position is basically like the only position they really have their sleep apnea. And so if it can get them onto their side, it works for them. But I have yet to, I guess I
1: could like, you know, try a golf ball or something more sizable for a kid and suggest that. So thinking about our surgical options, who is a surgical candidate?
0: One thing that I always find, you know, unique is that whether it's ear infections or like sleep disturbance, in many ways, kind of the ear tubes and the TNA is kind of like, oh, yeah, that's the most common thing we do. You know, it's this simple thing we do. And honestly, when you compare kind of the decision making to the surgeries, the surgeries may be kind of the more simple things we do, but the decision-making on these um, can go so many different directions. Um, and I think that that's because really each child and each family is so unique in terms of what they bring to their, from their past experiences and from the severity of the case, and how much the symptoms are affecting the family, and do they have allergies or not, or what other surgeries they've had. Um, And so all of those things really factor in. Um, You know, when it comes to kind of good surgical candidate, um, again, you know, most of the time, like maybe 80-85% of the time, it's a two, three, four, five, six-year-old kid that has three or four plus tonsils and a great history. Um, and so those, those from a surgical candidacy um, standpoint, are, are pretty easy to then have the discussion with the family and say, you know, this is an option. More than likely, this is going to get a very good result. Um, It's still something we'll have to check afterwards, but, um, you know, particularly if they're severe sleep apnea, then that discussion becomes much easier. Um, It's kind of the mild to moderate sleep apneas that then make it a little bit harder to figure out, well, you know, what are we looking to try to improve? What are the symptoms? What is everything else that kind of relays into this? Um, And then, and then in terms of, Kind of all those other risk factor patients that we talked about, whether there's obesity or craniofacial disorders. Um, you know, again, if they haven't had a tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, most of the time, if the if there are tonsils and adenoids that are still there that are reasonably sized, that still is going to probably be the first. Uh, the first option to determine whether or not that can provide an impact and then basically kind of risk stratifying out after that. Um, And then we didn't talk about this, um, get to this in terms of the DICE specifically um, in the last question, but again, these kind of higher risk populations are another great category of patients to think about DICE. Um, And it may be that more and more um, especially if the tonsils and the adenoids are small, then dice gets put in upfront for some of these higher risk patients that are then more at risk to continue to have sleep apnea
1: afterwards. And so we know how common adenotonsillectomy is, but what other surgical options are available for patients that don't have obstruction at those levels or have previously had an adenotonsillectomy done?
0: So again this will be somewhat patient dependent, but, um, you know, it kind of works on a, say we've got the tonsils and the adenoids out. um, It works on a spectrum from there, all the way up to, as we know, really kind of the most extreme uh, surgical procedure is tracheostomy, um, which really bypasses all of the upper airway level obstructions. And so, um, you know, one thing that, we haven't specifically kind of mentioned in, but certainly um, in the factoring in of the tonsils and the adenoids, the turbinates are something else that I also consider. Um, if the turbinates are large and there's a lot of nasal obstruction and maybe they, also, they do, or maybe they don't have a history of allergy. Um, but um, many times I will also kind of add in turbinoplasty into the treatment paradigm for, uh, for sleep apnea. And so then some of the other things, you know, as we kind of go down the levels that we've talked about, um, you know, it's possible that they could have, you know, an elongated palate, um, that has obstruction at the level of the palate. You know, that's something that I tend to see much less commonly, I would say in pediatrics as opposed to adult practice. Um, I was a general ENT for a few years before I went back to fellowship, um, and certainly, um, the palatal redundancy was a not uncommon thing in some of the adult patients that we had from kind of a sleep apnea standpoint. Um, And then in terms of kind of moving further, there can be lingual tonsil hypertrophy that we've mentioned. And so doing procedures to basically kind of reduce that lingual tonsil excess can also be beneficial. Um, And then we mentioned that there can be basically a Um, laryngomalacia component that can sometimes contribute, so a supraglottoplasty to treat that can be helpful. And then in terms of kind of additional procedures, you know, if there is retronathia or micronathia, mandibular distraction type procedures, and then overall um, weight loss in general, you know, whether that be through kind of diet and exercise and those focuses, all the way up to kind of the extreme end of bariatric surgery. Um, But those are kind of a a long litany list of the various surgical options, which are really going to be
1: directed at the level at which obstruction is happening. And so thinking about specifically for tonsillectomy, I think we've all heard that there's kind of a variety of different approaches that can be taken, whether it be extracapsular versus intracapsular. Can you talk a little bit about those and the different approaches? Sure. So um
0: I personally um basically was trained and do extracapsular removal, so basically removing the entire um tonsil and I tend to use electrocautery and do it do that with Bovie, same thing I use suction Bovie for the adenoids. Um there are, you know, obviously various Uh, instruments that people use. Some people use the coblator. some people use the microdebrider. So there's different options and those can each kind of interchangeably be used uh, during tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy as well as just cold steel. Um, In terms of the extracapsular versus intracapsular, um, you know, the intracapsular or Some people call it partial tonsillectomy. Some people call it tonsillotomy. There's a lot of names that um, essentially kind of get thrown around. But the, the general idea or concept is that there is a capsule around the tonsil. And so if you're kind of removing it and removing the tonsil with its capsule, so kind of staying right on the border of that capsule, but making that separation on that side versus the other procedures basically kind of like chew or melt or reduce down the tonsil working from kind of the medial aspect out laterally, but preserve a thin layer of the capsule and usually like a teeny, teeny thin layer of tonsil that's like just overlying that capsule there's been a lot of studies that have looked at are any of these procedures better or worse um, when it comes to comparing extra, the different varieties of extra tonsillar Um, or extracapsular tonsillectomy Um, there's never really been a study which has shown that one technique was better than the other Um, in terms of the kind of more intracapsular tonsillectomy um, there have been studies which have shown that um, there is probably a little bit quicker return to normal diet um, and a little bit um, lower kind of issue in terms of pain Um, and then also probably because of those factors, um, a little bit lower uh, rate of post tonsillectomy hemorrhage as well. So um, I, as I mentioned kind of at the beginning, um, you know, I, I did not train with doing any of the intracapsular techniques. And so, you know, kind of my learning curve to get to that point would probably maybe not have me have those same levels of Kind of benefit for a, a while because obviously as you're starting out with new procedures, there's always a little bit of that learning curve. You know, in terms of you know how we're talking about comparing these, um, you know, tracking tracking your own data is a wonderful thing to do, and also recommended and encouraged in terms of knowing what your own complication rates are in terms of bleeding um, and the different types of bleeding that we see afterwards. So
1: So who should be admitted after surgery and who can be a same-day discharge?
0: Generally speaking, um, and, you know, the the guidelines also kind of factor, you know, into this as well, um, but basically kind of the similar population that you were kind of recommended to consider getting a sleep study on, many of those also are going to be patients that you want to keep in the hospital. Um, So certainly any pediatric patients under two, um, you know, you're patients that have obesity, patients that have syndromes such as Down syndrome, craniofacial abnormalities, or neuromuscular disorders. Um, If you have patients um, that have uncontrolled or severe asthma, um, as well as any patients that have severe sleep apnea, um, it's generally recommended to keep them. Um, You know, some of this realistically speaking on a practice level, may be different depending on the institution that you're in um, and the insurances that you're dealing with, um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, So I do know that sometimes because there's so many kids that do have severe sleep apnea um, and that, you know, there may be a little bit of kind of wiggle room in terms of who's admitting what level of severity of sleep apnea, you know, does a kid who's, 12 years old and 11.0 really need to be admitted. You know the, So again, that's where we have the guidelines, but um, some of these different kind of personal and practice related factors will um, influence how, how things go.
1: And then what are some post-operative complications that we should be aware of?
0: Sure. So, um, you know, and again, these are all things that also should come up in your informed kind of discussion with the parents thinking about surgery. Um, you know, I'll basically probably kind of direct this to tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy because going through all the complications of like every other possible surgery would take A while, (laughs) Um, but uh, you know, in terms of tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, um, the biggest risk that I usually kind of bring up is the risk of bleeding postoperatively. And that's because it's fairly common. Um, you know, the the rates generally kind of quoted in the literature are about, you know, maybe like three to 5% in terms of that secondary bleed rate. Um, and so there's kind of two different classifications of bleeding that we usually talk about. There's kind of primary bleeding and secondary bleeding, primary bleeding, which is bleeding that happens within the first 24 hours of surgery. And that's, generally felt to be a little bit more technique related, um, as opposed to secondary bleeding. And that's, that happens usually on average, somewhere around, um, the seven to 10 day mark postoperatively, but can happen up to basically two weeks out. Um, and so usually I bring that up with the parents, Um, you know, personally over, you know, since I finished fellowship, my primary bleed rate is 0%. So fortunately, I think my technique's okay at the moment. (laughs) Um, And my secondary bleed rate is actually about 1.5% at the moment. So um, every day, I honestly like keep waiting for a kid to come in uh, because I feel like I'm due for it (laughs) by the numbers. But but so I think, you know, having that information is important, but I still usually kind of give a paint a picture more for the family, you know, of that three to 5% because it's, you know, I tell them, you know, it's not the majority, but it doesn't mean it's not common and that we don't see it often because we do so many of these. Um, And so I really, you know, try to get them to understand that it's not something that, you know, is 0.3% and we're not seeing it frequently. Um, and then other things that I usually bring up is certainly kind of long-term changes to the voice or swallowing are very rare. Um, I, you know, I do specifically address kind of nasal air escape, um, in terms of, I usually describe it as that and and not say velopharyngeal insufficiency, because that usually just gets funny looks. Um, but basically those are very rare. Um, you know, I, I usually bring up injury to the teeth, the lips and the gums, um, cause certainly we're going in and out with instruments and those are definitely kind of big, important, um, complications that can happen again, not usually common, but, um, but can be pretty severe, um, in terms of the like oral commissure burns that have happened, um, to other, uh, to other providers. So I usually bring that up and then, um, kind of the for the kids that we're keeping, um, the reason really why we're keeping them is not to make sure they're eating and drinking. Okay. Um, it's to make sure that they don't go into post-obstructive pulmonary edema. So basically by relieving that, um, rest- like relieving that pressure that they're trying to breathe against that all of a sudden their lungs don't just suddenly flood, uh, with fluid. And so I, uh, I have not had that happen, um, but one of my colleagues had that happen um, in the PACU. Um, and so um, it certainly can be a very scary thing when it does happen. And so, um, you know, I, that's what I mentioned, particularly for the patients that we're, that were keeping. Um, I don't specifically highlight that, that as much for kind of the, the mild
1: sleep apnea patient. But. And then thinking about uh, success with surgery, how do you counsel parents on the chance of of success? In terms of
0: success, again, kind of it varies depending on, you know, the many factors that go into it. Uh, you know, I think that generally speaking for the patients that are younger, otherwise healthy, have big tonsils and adenoids. Um, I, I, you know, I don't necessarily give specific numbers, but I say, you know, the large majority of my patients do very well and we follow along after to make sure that everything's, you know, going to get better. Um, But, and then in terms of, you know, when there's multiple kind of confounding risk factors, um, you know, usually I I gauge it more in, we're going to do this first step to see where we're at, and then we're going to reevaluate. And so, um, you know, I think sometimes from this standpoint, kind of because there's so much involved, sometimes the percentages, um, you know, I had a staff that once said, you know, percentages are great, but the, you know, if the patient's on the other side of that percentage, that's the only thing that matters to them. So, um, you know, from the standpoint that it gives us a little bit of guidance, but Every patient is so individualized that sometimes, sometimes the percentages I think can help, but sometimes I think they can hurt too. So I think there's times to use them and times to, to sometimes individualize it
1: a little more. And so moving on to follow up, what does follow up look like?
0: So in our practice, um, and actually some of the, some of the other places that. I kind of, you know, trained along the semblance of time. Um, again, for the patients that have maybe just kind of mild to moderate sleep apnea, otherwise healthy. I feel like I've said this like over and over again, that same beginning intro. Um, but uh, but we actually started having our nurses do a six week follow up by phone call, um, and if they are doing well. You know, back to their normal selves, but better from a sleep standpoint, eating and drinking fine, not having any problems, like snoring is resolved, they're sleeping through the night and they're just great. Um, We actually um, review that nursing phone call and offer the family an appointment, but most of them turn it down because they're like, if I don't have to come in for no real reason, I'm good with it. Um, So we started doing that for some of our more kind of, you know, very straightforward cases. Um, and then otherwise, for um, any of the severe sleep apnea patients or any other risk factor patients, um, usually I'll see them back at six weeks just to kind of touch base, see how things are initially going, um, and then um, usually order a, sleep, a repeat sleep study around three months um, and then use that to kind of gauge what next steps will be.
1: And finally, touching a little bit on the natural history of this disorder, what could we expect to happen if no treatment was pursued?
0: Yeah. So, you know, again, it probably varies a little bit in terms of the severity. You know, we do know that many kids with mild to moderate are probably going to outgrow this um, just as they get bigger and their tonsils and adenoids kind of shrink up naturally a little bit over time. But we do know that there can be, um, you know, severe consequences from a cardiovascular standpoint. Especially, we know that there can be pulmonary hypertension, and even in kids that have um, severe sleep apnea, there can there are studies showing that that can have even like a more kind of immediate impact in terms of having hypertension um, in general and even having some kind of pulmonary hypertension type changes. Um, And so, um, you know, over the long course of that, for that to go untreated certainly can then cause kind of ramifications in terms of cardiac function. You know, we also know that, again, sleep is just incredibly important for our neurocognitive selves and our behavior. Um, And that's something that then if that's also impacting school and learning and other things of that nature can even have kind of ramifications in terms of like their future. Um, And you know, we even know that, you know, disruptions in sleep can just in general affect mood and mental health conditions as well. And so really being able to improve sleep just has so many um, benefits. And some of that likewise um, can relate to um metabolic disturbances as well and so certainly the ability to lose weight and other things is also impacted by sleep and so um, you know for the patients that have obesity you know if they're not sleeping well they're also not going to be able to have good metabolic control and so that can also kind of create a futile cycle um, mm-hmm. And then um, kind of on the flip side of, you know, we've been talking about obesity, but, you know, if we go back to that infant that maybe was having some of these obstructive sleep-related symptoms to laryngomalacia, um, you know, the breathing issues can Um, And those patients sometimes cause increased metabolic needs. And so therefore there can be kind of growth failure and other, um, other things. And so uh, because of that, you know, we know that, you know, helping this can have just broad reaching um, benefits for our patients beyond just parents finally being able to sleep for the first time.
1: Dr. Bo, thanks again for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yep. No,
0: you know I keep shouting out to the academy for their guidelines, um, but you know, I, again, I think that they help, and I think they're helpful to know um, for some of the things that I mentioned in terms of, you know, the the impact of everyone outside of medicine that affects medicine. Um, so certainly, um, as You know, people are in their different practice settings and dealing with their different insurance companies. Uh, They're aware of the documents that are put put out by our academy. Um, And ideally, those are helping us to be able to take care of patients the the way we want to. Um, And so I think it's helpful to kind of be involved from that standpoint so that uh, we can try to impact patient care as much as we can.
1: So in summary, sleep disordered breathing is characterized by an abnormal respiratory pattern during sleep and includes snoring, mouth breathing, and pauses in breathing. On the other hand, obstructive sleep apnea requires a polysomnography for diagnosis. An apnea hypopnea index, or AHI, greater than 1 is diagnostic for obstructive sleep apnea in children. Patients with sleep disordered breathing can present with nighttime symptoms, including snoring, apneic pauses, gasping, restless sleep, frequent arousals throughout the night, and bedwetting, as well as daytime symptoms, including behavioral problems such as hyperactivity or difficulty concentrating. A polysomnography is indicated in patients where there is a discordance between tonsillar size on physical exam and the reported severity of sleep disordered breathing on history. In addition, those patients with specific comorbidities such as obesity, Down syndrome, craniofacial abnormalities, or neuromuscular disorders should also undergo a sleep study. Some non-surgical treatment options include CPAP, BiPAP, nasal steroid spray, and cast. In general, adenotonsillectomy is the first-line surgical treatment for patients meeting criteria for surgery. Postoperative inpatient overnight monitoring after tonsillectomy is indicated for patients who are two years or younger or have severe OSA. The most common postoperative complication after adenotonsillectomy is oropharyngeal bleeding. The risk of a secondary bleed is highest around 7 to 10 days after surgery and occurs in about 3 to 5% of patients. Other complications are more rare, but include post-obstructive pulmonary edema, long-term changes to voice and swallowing, filopharyngeal insufficiency, and intraoperative injury to the teeth, lips, or gums, including oral commissure burns. I'll now move on to the question portion of this podcast. As a reminder, I will ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then give the answer. The first question is what are the AHI diagnostic criteria for mild, moderate, and severe sleep apnea in children? The AHI diagnostic criteria are different for children compared with adults for obstructive sleep apnea. In children, mild sleep apnea is defined as an AHI greater than one, but less than or equal to five. Moderate sleep apnea is an AHI greater than five, but less than or equal to 10. Severe sleep apnea is an AHI greater than 10. The second question is who should be admitted for inpatient observation after a tonsillectomy? After a tonsillectomy, patients who are at increased risk for developing post-obstructive pulmonary edema should be admitted. This includes patients who are 2 years older or younger and those with severe obstructive sleep apnea. So those with an AHI greater than 10 or an oxygen saturation nadir of less than 80%. The third question is what are some complications of untreated sleep apnea in children? There is evidence that pediatric patients can develop pulmonary hypertension or even systemic hypertension with long-standing, untreated sleep apnea. There can also be growth or metabolic disturbance, as well as neurocognitive and behavioral difficulties. Thanks for joining, and we'll see you next time.